If during Passion Week, where we remember Good Friday and Easter Sunday, if on Good Friday I were to say a sentence, but not complete it, if I were to say, it's Friday, but, I suspect most of you would know how to complete that sentence. So let's try it. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That phrase exists. It's hopeful. It's true. We're certain of it. Um, that though Jesus was crucified on Friday, we know that he rose again from the dead on Sunday. Four Gospels tell us that. Acts tell us that. The epistles tell us that. 2,000 years of church history and changed lives testify to the fact that that is absolutely <clears throat> true. We have these testimonies, and by the power and by the grace of God, we believe them. But what that means is that as we read about the events that transpired between Good Friday and Jesus' appearance to the disciples the evening of Resurrection Sunday, when we read them, we have to kind of have an extra measure of care not to miss what we're being taught because we bring understanding and information and assumptions to the story that they would not have had. The moment you became a Christian... Whenever that was, your Jesus was already alive and had been for 2,000 years. But for the disciples behind those locked doors, Jesus was not alive. That was not part of their understanding. They had no Gospels to read at the time. So what I want to do this morning, before we actually get to our text, is and try and get us in that moment. To see this day and this night, that Sunday night, through the eyes of the disciples and reconstruct a bit what they would have known but not import a bunch of things that, though true, they did not yet know. If we do that, I think we're going to find some really wonderful things in Jesus' words to his disciples that I hope you'll find encouraging and that will build your faith. So what did the, did the disciples know, or think they knew, um, that Sunday evening just prior to Jesus appearing to them? Well, in the broadest possible terms, they knew that Jesus was unlike any other person any other prophet, any other teacher, uh, any mere man that any of them had ever known or heard of. Over the course of three years, they had seen him raise the dead three times, cleanse dozens of lepers, people that had internal bleeding, spent all their money, the doctors couldn't help, touched him, and they were healed. He walked on water. He fed thousands with a boy's lunch. He calmed a storm cast out demons, declared forgiveness of sins, which really got under some people's skin, turned water into wine at Cana. And he showed a love and a concern and a tenderness towards the sort of people that nobody else paid any attention to. He got a reputation. And you might want to think about whether you have this reputation because it's a good one. Got a reputation as a friend of sinners and tax collectors, of gluttons and of drunkards. He was not a glutton or a drunkard. He was not a sinner or a tax collector. But those people could come to him and know that while he held his standards of righteousness, it didn't keep them from loving them. His teaching was profound to the degree 
that the best and the brightest, those who knew their Old Testament, they would have been the PhDs of the day. They got to a place where they were afraid to ask him any more questions because it always turned out poorly for them. Every time they set a trap, they would feel it close around their own leg. Jesus was and is and will forever be one of a kind. There's no one else like him. And these disciples got to eat with him, walk with him, do life with him, enter ministry with him. He would send them out two by two into the towns with power to heal and to cast out demons. And they did it, and they came back, and they were filled with joy. Jesus brought them along on an adventure in ministry unlike anything that we can imagine. Over time, their question that was asked with astonishment and a little bit of fear, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Can you imagine that moment? Your boat's about to capsize, capsize the, the winds are, are threatening you, and you have to wake him up. And he peeks up out of the stern of the boat and he says, peace be still, and it happens. What kind of man is that? That slowly gave way to Peter's confession. We know what kind of man you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. These incredible experiences with Jesus over three years of time resulted in the disciples having a really hard time accepting his predictions of his own death. How can the promised Messiah, who's to reign forever, how can the one who raises others from the dead, how can the one who's got the power over nature that no one else has, who's going to kill him? How can he die? We need him. There's no reason it won't happen. They had a terrible time accepting, and they never really did what Jesus said about his own death. There came a point where they somewhat reluctantly stopped arguing with him, really right at the point just before he was betrayed and killed. But they didn't really agree with him even then. They simply said, if it's going to happen, don't worry. We won't fall away. We'll stay with you the entire time. Matthew 26 records this. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, Peter's not going to make it 24 hours, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. We tend to be a little hard on them here. I just see an incredible love and incredible devotion. They're not going anywhere. Jesus, we're with you. He's so certain of his loyalty to Jesus that he argues with Jesus. You say I'm going to deny you, Lord, God, you're wrong. That's how certain he is of his affection and his loyalty, that he will never leave Jesus. And all the disciples said the same thing. They're solid, they're unafraid, they had Jesus back. 
Well, that's what they knew Thursday night, the day before Good Friday. What did they know just two days later, after Good Friday? What did they know Resurrection Sunday before they had seen and believed that the Lord had risen? Well, they knew that the one that they had confessed as a Christ, the Son of the living God, is dead. They had wanted to sit one on his right hand and one on his left in this glorious coming kingdom, but there's not going to be any kingdom because we lost our king. Their hope for their people and for their land to once again be what God had promised, a, a great nation that would itself bless all the nations of the world, that dream was gone. On a more personal level, they had just lost the best friend anyone could ever have. The teacher that they loved and admired, the one who, who gave them words of life. When, when Jesus began to teach some difficult things in John 6, it says some of the disciples were leaving, not the 12, but the larger group. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, bring them back. He turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go as well? And they answered and said, where would we go? You alone have words of life. So they, they love this man. And now he's dead. From Friday on, all they would have known was unspeakable grief, loss, confusion, numbness, fear, which is why they're locked in a room where they are. When you've invested three years around the clock, 24-7, with somebody that you love and admire on a mission from God, you're serving the Lord, good things are happening, the dead are being raised, the sick are being healed, and it all comes crashing down in a single day. I can only assume that something dies inside, that, that, that you just alternate between unspeakable grief and just numb. I want to be careful not to offend any of you. I've been through a lot of funerals that have been held right here. We have lost people that we love from this body. And I don't want to offend anyone because I know those losses are painful and very, very personal. But I think we need to hear this. None of us have ever lost anyone as magnificent as Jesus. And they lost Jesus. And they didn't know he was coming back. Friday had come and gone, and the only thing that they were thinking might happen on Sunday was that they would be arrested as well. What makes all this a thousand times worse is that they knew that they had failed their friend and their Lord on multiple occasions, very recently. They could not stay awake and pray with him in the garden. They fell asleep. They fled when the soldiers came to arrest him. Peter followed to the high priest's house where the trial would be, and he was out in the courtyard, where he then proceeded, as Jesus said he would, to deny three times that he even knew him. And Mark tells us that the third time, he did it with a curse. I don't know the man. Of the 11 disciples remaining after Jesus had hanged himself, only John is said to be at the foot of the cross. The shepherd was struck and the sheep were scattered. So what do you think they're feeling? 
as they gather in that upper room. They're behind locked doors for fear. We know that. But we know much more. I think it takes zero imagination to also know something of what was going on in their heart. And it would have been grief. It would have been confusion. And it all would have been compounded by the fact that they, in their shame and in their fear, abandoned the man that they'd sworn their loyalty to. I want us to be there with them. I want us to imagine experiencing what we know they experienced. All that joy, all that expectation, all that glorious future, and it's done. And it's gone. Remember your deepest loss, your greatest failure, the shame you hold that you hope no one ever finds out. And then magnify it all tenfold. And that's what they're dealing with. We know it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. They did not. They only knew Friday. So they're locked away in a room where they were gathered in fear, and Mary comes in with some incredible news. Verse 18 of John 20. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. We've all heard that a woman's testimony was not given much weight in those days. I'd like to think this was different. They knew Mary. They trusted Mary. They were probably there when, when Jesus had cast seven demons out from this woman, and she had been a loyal follower ever since. She knew where they were hiding. They let her into the locked room. Even so, John records no celebration, no response. They don't say a word, at least not a word that John records, because they're not believing the eyewitness testimony, even from someone that they knew and trusted. And I don't see that as a lack of respect for Mary or others, but as a measure of their despair. Can you imagine if they had dared to believe one single testimony that everything that they knew and seen and were now grieving and had been grieving for the last 48 hours, it's not true. The nightmare's over. He's alive. Only to find out it was a ghost. It was a vision. It was a hallucination. And you're right back in your nightmare, only now it's worse. They would not remain in unbelief much longer because Jesus was going to come to them in person that very night. But before we get to that text, the text that David read for us, there's one more thing I want us to see, and it's this. Mary didn't just come with her eyewitness testimony to these men. She also came with a message for these men from Jesus. John 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but... Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and, and that he had said these things. So did you catch what he said? Almost in passing, easy, easy to miss but this would have transformed their hearts as they heard it and if they believed. 
Jesus tells us, and I have to believe that Mary would have relayed this to them, that Jesus referred to these men as brothers. Now, I think because we read the term brothers in the scripture a lot, we think, well, that's common. It's not for Jesus to call his disciples, his brothers. It happens one time in all three synoptics, the same event being repeated in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It never happens in John, except for here. He reserved the one time in John that he looked at his disciples or re referenced his disciples to call them brothers for this point right here. While they're locked in an upper room, covered with grief and shame because they had abandoned the one that they loved. And they're not just brothers. He says, I am ascending to my father and your father. I have a son. He's 21. He's in the army. Uh, he's preparing to fly helicopters. And as part of that, if you're a, a military aviator, uh, there's a school you have to go to called SEER School, S-E-R-E. -E. Stands for survive, evade, resist, and escape. And it's for if you get shot down behind enemy lines. You want to survive, you want to evade, and then if you get captured, you want to resist and you want to escape. It goes for 21 days. It was actually held in a prison camp, concertina wire. They're locked in. We're not going to hear from them until May 1st um, because they take the cell phones away and all that. They teach them, and they also torture them. I believe he'll, well, I've got to be careful here. There's things I probably shouldn't say in a public forum. Um, but I can say this. Um, they're allowed to break up the three small bones in preparation for what it might be like if you're shot down and captured by the enemy. My son's looking forward to this. Those of you that know him know he's a little crazy. Um, he says he's looking forward to it. I'll leave it at that. I'm not. My son will easily and quickly forgive those who break those bones. I'm going to be a little slower. So when Jesus says, my father is your father, there's something profound being said here. Jesus may have forgiven them because of the Father. That's a legitimate question. Forget questions of Trinity and the unity and the Father and the Son. That's kind of down the road. Has the Father forgiven them? And Jesus says he has. You're my brothers, and my Father is your Father. And not only this, but my God is still your God. They've not been excommunicated. Their failure didn't mean they were out. He's their brother, one father, one God. If you're wondering why this message was sent with Mary, as opposed to Jesus delivering it personally, I suspect the reason is that they could not have handled seeing him alive unless they first knew they were forgiven. Do you remember the last time Peter saw Jesus prior to this upper room appearance on Sunday? It was right after, it was Thursday night, Friday morning time frame, right after the third time he denied that he even knew him. Luke 22, 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, 
before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It's the last mention in any gospel of any interaction between Jesus and Peter prior to Sunday night. And it ended with Peter, a broken man, weeping bitterly with shame. And so now as Jesus is ready to enter that locked room, I hope you're there with those disciples. I hope you know that this wasn't going to be a party. There were no balloons, no confetti. Mary comes and says, I've seen the Lord. They don't necessarily become all chipper and happy and say, when's my turn? So Jesus sends with Mary the fact, and the fact that he sent this with Mary, I think speaks to the need that these men had to know that when they do see Jesus, there will be no condemnation, no scolding, no shame. You are my brothers. We have one Father. We have one God. It's okay. And now... As we turn to our text, hopefully we are somewhat freed from all our 21st century knowledge and assumptions, everything that we know from having a complete Bible that might keep us from feeling what they felt. We never lost Jesus. They lost Jesus. And there was a lot of guilt in that whole process that they would have been feeling. So now we come to John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. That's a strange way to enter a room, to just appear. Rooms have doors. You can knock. He can use a voice where they will understand it's him and they can let him in, and he doesn't do that. He just appears. I think there's numerous reasons for that. I'm just going to give you one, and it's not mine. It's one I came across that I was touched by. And I hope you're touched by it as well. It comes from John Piper, who many of you know. And he says that Jesus' appearance in a locked room, quote, means that today in your life, Jesus can go where no one else can go. He can go where no counselor can go. He can go where no doctor can go. He can go where no lover can go. He can reach you and reach into you anywhere and anytime. There is no place where you are and no depths of personhood that you are which Jesus can't penetrate. I wept when I read that. It's so true. Every one of us has our own locked rooms. I'm not trying to spiritualize here, but I think Dr. Piper's right. The only one who can get inside that you really need him to get inside is Jesus. And what a great picture this text gives of us. A locked door will not keep him out. And then there's first words in that verse to his disciples as he appears to them, peace be with you. We might be tempted to kind of throw that away as just kind of a high. It's not a high. 
It's profound. How can they have peace with him when they have offended him? How can they have peace with him when they have abandoned him? In the disciples' mind, there would have been no reason to believe that Jesus would come to them and be at peace with them. But the truth is so necessary, apparently, that it's not just said once. It's going to be said a second time, just two verses later, and a third time, eight days later, all in our passage. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I don't know why the ESV uses glad. Uh, NASB has rejoiced. Um, and for reasons I won't go into, I think it's a far better translation because when I think of glad, I don't think of my risen Lord. Glad is my favorite restaurant has a fresh shipment of ahi tuna. Glad is I open the drawer and find socks that match. Jesus just rose from the dead. I'm going to rejoice. But the main thing to see in this verse, I think, is that the disciples apparently needed to see the wounds in Jesus' body because it said he showed them his hands and his side. They needed to know that it was him and not a ghost, not a spirit. Luke's gospel tells us that that is what they thought when they first saw him. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And, and Luke tells us that Jesus assured them in a very unusual way. He said, do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of fish, hoping, I think, that they would understand that ghosts don't eat fish. And Jesus ate before them. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. Even so, I am sending you. John wants us to know, because he said Jesus said to them again, he wants us to know, this is the second time, that he said, peace be with you. When I read of all the reassurances that Jesus has to give to these men, I think of Joseph and his brothers. When Jacob died, remember what was on Joseph's brother's mind and heart? Oh, great. Dad's gone. Joseph's going to get his pound of flesh. And Joseph had to reassure his brothers, I'm not after that. We're good. That's what Jesus is doing. Peace be with you a second time. But not only that, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's Jesus' way of telling them they still have a place in the kingdom. They still have ministry work to do. They're not fired. They're not washed up. They're not cast aside. This is going to be so difficult for them to get their head around that when you get into the next chapter, you find that they're all out just fishing doing what they did before. They're not preaching the gospel. They're not carrying on the work of the ministry. They did not have all they needed yet to continue on the ministry. The Pente Pentecost and that empowering was still in their future. But they're still on the team. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does that mean? Is he giving them kind of permission and carte blanche to say, I like you, you're forgiven, not so sure about you, 
No. What he's saying is, I'm going to send my spirit. That's why he breathed upon them first. And the spirit, John tells us in John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What, what's being said here is that you are going to become my authoritative disciples to write down what I said and what I taught. The gospel is about forgiveness of sins, and you're going to tell people what, how that works and what's that, what that is like and what that is not like. It's not giving them a blank page. It's saying you're going to remember what I told you, and you're going to write it down for subsequent generations. It's a great honor to do that, and they should not have expected it. So they're brothers with Christ. They're sons of the Father. They have peace with God. They have a ministry. They have a purpose. They have a promise of the Holy Spirit to guide them. This has been a really good night, folks. It's a good night. But only 10 of them are present. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now for those words, he has been tagged with the rather unflattering nickname, Doubting Thomas. I think that's a mistake. Because the other ten hadn't believed either. The other ten needed to see the wounds as well. Thomas is asking for nothing more than what all the other disciples had been given by Jesus. They're at a critical point in redemptive history. Jesus is still amassing witnesses, eyewitnesses. There's Mary, there's the other women at the tomb, there's the ten, now there's Thomas. 1 Corinthians 15 says at one time there'll be 500 in one place. He's gathering eyewitnesses so that things can be written and other people will believe. We'll get there momentarily. Eight days later, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, the third time. Apparently these men needed to know that. They needed to know that he died for sins and the fear of unbelief that were present even that very hour in the disciples. You don't have peace if you're still, in God's eyes, a sinner. Peace only comes through Christ. And that declaration, peace be with you, means everything that they had done and everything that they were going to do had been forgiven. Verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And I think Thomas, quite honestly, has a much better response than the other ten. He's not just rejoicing. He's worshiping. It falls to the so-called doubter among the eleven to be the one in the story who declares what the resurrection actually proves. Jesus is both Lord and God. 
It was Peter's turn earlier. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, to declare something incredibly profound. And now it's Thomas's turn. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I know people see a rebuke here. Because Jesus said, well, there's going to be those who are willing to believe without seeing, and they're blessed. Thomas, you needed to see, ergo you are not blessed. I don't read it that way at all. Thomas, like the other ten, had suffered a loss that we don't know anything about. Try as we might, we never lost Jesus. Thomas did. And he knew that the reversal of that loss to go from doubting and from confusion and from unbelief to faith was going to take something substantial. He was actually going to have to see his Lord alive and see the body that would have those distinct marks on it. He was the only one with the wound in his side. Well, if this is not a rebuke, what is it? John's approaching the end of his gospel. And I think he's telling them and us that we are right at that point of transition in history. Jesus is, as I said, amassing eyewitnesses. But he's not going to go on a 2,000-year-long roadshow. So each one of you gets to see. He's going to return to the Father. But before returning to the Father, he wants a lot of people who can swear, not just with their words, but many of them on their life, because they gave their lives for this, we saw him alive. It was right for Thomas to want to see it, and Jesus let him see his resurrected body. And just as he had breathed the Spirit on them, the Spirit not only is going to allow them to remember all that he said and taught and write it down accurately and put that eyewitness testimony into the Gospels and into Acts and into all of the epistles. Not only going to allow them to do that, but that same spirit, in addition to being on the speaker and the writer, is going to be on the hearer and the reader, on you. Jesus' words to me seem... I'm sorry, Jesus' words to Thomas seemed to me very much like his response to Peter's confession. Because when Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he didn't say, good job. You've studied hard. You've put together all the pieces of the puzzle, and you've got it. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure it out on your own. But my Father, who is in heaven. I think... Jesus, in speaking with Thomas, is saying there's going to be people come along, they're not going to see it. It won't be a flesh and blood. But my Father will bless them the same way he blessed Peter for that confession. I don't believe that Jesus, who has been consistently tender with these men, unbelievably tender with these men, has suddenly pivoted to rebuke Thomas. He's simply saying, not everyone's going to see what you saw, and not everyone will need to see what you saw. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. With that, we come to the end of the text. It's the end of the chapter. 
as well as to the point of this entire message, which I hope will be faithful to John's point throughout his gospel. Because he says, everything that I've recorded, easy to understand, some things requiring more study, everything that I have recorded, that John has recorded, all that he's written, and that I've preached has one aim, that you will believe. And believing that you'll have life in his name. And it's interesting, John says, I could have written more. When he gets to the end of the book, one more chapter, right at the end he says, if I tried to record all the things that Jesus did, all the books of the world would not contain them. So he's edited down the list, and he's given you what he thinks that we know. And he didn't record any more. He's given us all we need to know that the gospel is true because if the Holy Spirit is at work in you, where you feel there's something wrong, the Bible says I'm a sinner, and you know something? I feel that. I can't even do what I want to do. I fail my own ethics. I am broken. I am very, very imperfect. If the Spirit's at work in you, convicting you of that, you don't need any more than what John wrote in his gospel. And if the Spirit's not convicting you of that, he could record 20 more miracles and it wouldn't budge you. You'd have a video of Jesus walking out of the tomb and it would not make you a Christian because you would either disbelieve it or you would dismiss it as irrelevant to your life. But when you are feeling, I am a sinner, when you know that there's something wrong with you, then Jesus starts to make sense. And skepticism gives way to faith, and you begin to read John or another gospel, and you begin to say, I get it. And not only do you get it, you say, I like it. Nobody ever became a Christian who didn't like Jesus. Nobody ever became a Christian who thought the gospel was true, but kind of dumb. You become a Christian when something happens, so you cry out, what must I do to be saved? God wills that eyewitness testimony, whether a few hours after the fact or 2,000 years after the fact, would be enough for people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And if, by the Spirit, you are aware of your need for that, you will find the evidence sufficient. It's the only explanation for what you know is most true, Savior. I want to leave you with one Believing Jesus rose from the dead is absolutely necessary to the Christian faith. If you don't believe that, you can't be a Christian. It's that simple. It's a cornerstone. It is essential. But there's a difference between essential and sufficient. Because Satan knew that Jesus rose from the dead. You must believe that. But you must believe more. And from what we've seen today... Here's the something more that I want to leave you with. The Jesus that rose from the dead showed himself to be incredibly gracious and kind and tender and patient. We saw how he treated the men who had scattered, who had said, we've got your back, and they didn't. Can you conceive of a more loving Savior? To say it a little bit differently... The reason unbelief is so serious, so incredibly serious, 
is because Jesus is so incredibly good. When you don't believe, you're not pushing aside a tyrant. You're pushing aside somebody who is a shepherd who died for his sheep. You're pushing aside someone who knows your frame, who remembers that you are but dust, who will not tempt you or test you beyond what you can bear. You're pushing aside a husband who died for his bride. John wrote these things that you might believe in that Jesus, that that Jesus, that beautiful, wonderful, amazing Jesus is the one who walked out of the tomb. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will believe. That's why John wrote his gospel. I've written these things that you might believe and in him you might have life. Some of us have believed many, many years ago and still believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to learn better what a glorious Savior we have so that we will be freed from some of the bondages that hold us. We'll walk into more healed relationships. We'll let go of sin. We'll become more useful. Trite hobbies will have less fascination and ministry of the gospel will have more fascination for us. There are those of us that absolutely know that he rose from the dead but still need to be reminded of what kind of Savior rose from the dead. And then there's those, Lord, who have maybe, maybe even believed that, yeah, if he, he rose from the dead, I believe the tomb is empty, but have found no beauty in Christ, no attractiveness, because they know that when you give your life to Christ, you're giving up a certain measure of control. Not my will, but thine be done. It's not just something Jesus says, but something we say. Would you, by your spirit, come into our lives and increase our belief, whether unto maturity or unto salvation? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.